Welcome back to We're All Stories in the End, a podcast too broad and too deep for this particular pair of jeans I'm wearing. We are here to talk about the Virgin New Adventures, the BBC Eighth Doctor Adventures, and the adventures and escapades of everyone who grew up reading these silly books. I'm Ian, and joining me this week to talk about Steve Lyon's novel Conundrum is my beautiful friend, John. So, um, welcome back to the show, uh, John. How are you? I'm grand. It's absolutely grey, horrible and miserable out there today. So, I'm very disappointed to hear that because I was told it was quite hot and sunny a couple of weeks ago. But it was hot and sunny yesterday. Well, yeah. that's something. It's a British weather. We've got weather. Yeah. Proper now, weather. I should I should jump in here for anyone who's listening. This is quite a sort of... Um, you know, meta, postmodern kind of conversation, because obviously we're conducting this interview several months before the episode will be released. And who knows what the weather will be like on the day you're actually listening to this. Uh, but I have actually done the research with each individual listener in the future. And I know what weather they're going to have. So when they're listening to it, that's can what I, the weather's going to be like. Can I test this? Yes. All right. I want you to imagine my name is Stephen Sissons. I live in Northampton and I'm listening to this on November the 12th in the southeast of the UK. Oh, get, it's going to be a bit dark, a bit cloudy, a bit grey, going to threaten to rain all day, but it'll just be a little mild drizzle that'll just irritate your soul for the next six months and just make you that little bit miserable leading up to Christmas. I mean, I owe you an apology because I assumed you were lying, but you've clearly you've done a lot of work on this. Totally. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so... <laughs> We are here, despite all that all that preamble and all that weather, and um, we're here to talk about the new adventure novel, Conundrum, which um, I want to say, and I still I keep meaning to make myself a little um, spreadsheet of this, but I haven't. But I want to say it's January 94. It's January 94. I picked it up very late December, because obviously the new adventures, mm. they, their release dates were quite, shall we say, eccentric. Well, it... There are some books that are embargoed and you literally you will be sued if you put it on sale before the 17th of July, Harry Potter. The rest of the books, they have a sort of vague launch date and they'll turn up. And if no one really cares, they can be put on the shelves a week early, two weeks early. It's. I think it's, the, the earliest one I had got was Ghost of Endspace, which I got before the previous month's books were due out. Good gravy. That's very early indeed. But this, so you got this one at, uh, what, I guess Christmas time, um, late December. Yeah, yeah that, that little interregnum between Christmas and New Year in, in the oh. sadly departed bookworm shop in Newport. Oh. The week of turkey sandwiches and oh. crap films. Turkey curry, beautiful. Lovely. So um, I, I'll let you into a little secret. I was recon reconstructing the early 90s just now before we started speaking i was playing tetris i've downloaded a new app on my phone that's got oh. tetris on it 
So, and I was doing the music, Proper. and I, I was I was having a great time. I tell you, I haven't lost it either. Still got it. Brilliant, great times. So I feel fully, um, you know, back in the nineties, ready to talk about this book in. Uh, I, you know, I did think you were looking about seventeen again. Yeah, it, it's Thanks, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Really it's actually nice. it's new. Beautiful. It's a new cream I've been using. Ah, so. must give me a tip. It's hypoallergenic, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, it's just something that marketing people have come up with. I think you're right. That sounds good. It does, doesn't it? Like hohoba. That's <laughs> So um, let's start with the big elephant in the room kind of spoiler. So if you haven't read this 30-year-old children's book, dear listener, I'm about to spoil it for you. Um but it's set in the land of fiction. So my first question to you, John, is um, the mind robber discuss. Oh, it's it's just great, isn't it? It's it's clearly a, a television writer being quite unhappy with his lot and moaning about it for, you know, five episodes or four episodes plus a preview. It, it's, it's just yeah. so odd. It, it's just, you know, the Trekney Ray is largely a bunch of monsters Attack a base, Doctor. Run around four, six episodes. Doctor sorts it out. Well, that you know, that's the entire season beforehand. Yes. So the, uh, this is just it, the the mind was a really nice, odd Doctor Who. So you know, you've got the you see the forest of words. You see, it, it's out. It's so ambitious for that era of the show. It is. It is kind of a throwback to. I mean, it's the sort of thing that would have happened all the time in the in the Hartnell era. Because mm. his stories were kind of all over the place. And I suppose the the closest comparison I can think of to this would be the Celestial Toymaker. Although, of course, the Celestial <laughs> Toymaker is laughably terrible. It's it's yes, it's awful. It's not. Um, <laughs> which but one? yeah, it's it's here we are with a, a sort of Troughton story, which is kind of ridiculous and whimsical and. It's kind of set somewhere between science and magic. It's owing and aring and Is it a not, dream? Is it not a is dream? Is it a dream? Is it a dream? I mean, Wendy Padbury's bottom on the console when that's spinning round at it, the end of part one. It's a perfect that was, dream. That was a great dream. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but at the end of the story, the land of fiction was categorically and utterly destroyed. Yes. Yes. But Love someone some some baffling, mysterious presence in the in the doctor's or from the doctor's past has somehow reversed that and recreated the land of fiction, and hence we have conundrum, which is a really really good idea. You know, I, I, if I remember rightly, the one of the guidelines for events is don't use elements from the doctor's past, because let's face it, and they rightly knew it, most of those elements it's just someone. I can say I've written the word Dalek in a book. It's great. <laughs> or not in the new adventures, as the case may be. Well, I, I think they, they were allowed to allude to them on occasion, yes. but they couldn't actually appear. So we got the fractons. Um, so so I suppose with Conundrum, the where I'm kind of starting out thinking about it is that the first time you read it, and obviously you and I are both kind of teenagers, um, a lot easier to impress, I would imagine. But the first yes. time I read it, I was absolutely blown away, spellbound, 
drop me bacon sandwich. So I did when when it was revealed what was going on. And I think once you know that, it changes the way you could possibly reread the book. Yes, you can't go back to it. But it's absolute genius just to use that, reuse that idea of the mind robber again. Because if, you, if you've got the doctor suddenly in a literary world, you go back and you can use that absolutely unique narrative voice just to tell that story. And you're, at one point, the doctor's narrative voice, which is genius. Well, I mean, let's let's take a let's take a little leap sideways. Um, the the portrayal of the seventh doctor in this book is perhaps his most kind of godlike and indestructible and, and all knowing. And, and I love this. Is this the kind of seventh doctor that works for you? Oh, absolutely. And it works for the book as well, because you need him to be omnipotent and godlike as a counterpoint to the new master of land of fiction because you need the Doctor to be able to take control of the narrative at some point to get out of there. It's, I think it, where it does, where it is still really successful is that the things it does with the idea of having this environment which is fueled by a uh, constant generation of stories is he manages to use a completely different set of tropes and characters to the, 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 the old master of the land of fiction from the mind robber who clearly went to school in the i don't know 1920s or 1930s and so everything in that is kind of massively out of date and irrelevant to the kids watching it in the late 60s things like gulliver and um i can't even remember who else was in it now rapunzel was in it rapunzel was in it yeah um look annoying kids um, there was there was a sort of superhero, wasn't there? The, the carcass. The, the carcass. From the 2020s or whatever it was. From Zoe's time, I think she was familiar now, with him. Uh, I, I think if, if you're called the carcass, it implies you've lost the fight a long time ago. <laughs> I was going to say, is he a zombie? That's what I yeah. was wondering. Yeah, it's a white walker. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, the... The the stuff that was employed in the Mind Robber, kind of like in the Celestial Toymaker, was really harking back to the childhood of the people that wrote the stories. So it it felt kind of dated. I would have I would have thought yeah. on first transmission. This time around, we're in you know the book was written in ninety three, and what we've got are you know a, a parody of the Famous Five, a parody of Marvel superheroes. Yeah. And a sort of serial killer story. So not not entirely set within the childhood of the writer of this book, Steve Lyons, but probably close. It, yeah, it, it's it's the kind of things because uh, is it a teenager? I think the Master of Land of Fiction at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the kind of stories he'd find cool because there's a a crap typically crap detective, isn't it? A very Humphrey Bogart type. Oh, I'd forgotten him, Jack Corrigan. That's the one. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's got all those. And obviously it's got it's got the almost the stereotypical behavior from the companions as well of the new adventures. Uh, uh, to the point, I think at half time, it is taking the piss out of the new adventures themselves. So uh, to that point, <laughs> because, you know, Benny and Ace deliberately miserable, deliberate each other's throats, Dr. Omnipotent, godlike. I mean, if I remember rightly, this um, the, the, the five book arc that we're in here um the 
I think it's called the alternate history cycle. Alternate history cycle. Yeah. They love these cycles. The, and, and we won't say who the big bad is, but but that that series about that disappointing comeback. Um, Ace and Benny and the Doctor were all supposed to be kind of disintegrating, so that yes. the last book could be really high stakes. But without that context, then I think the relationships still stand. And as you say, this book kind mm. of demonstrates them in kind of extremis. Uh, Benny's still funny, but even she's had enough. Ace is, um, I would say, quite offside in this. She's, <laughs> yes. She's, she's currently unimpressed with the Doctor and his behaviour. She's very much almost back to her teenage self, isn't she? Just Yeah. And the and the doctor is like a sort of kicked puppy. He's kind of he's got a defeated. He knows that he's gone too far, maybe with certainly with Ace. But, but is he acting? But is he acting? And is, and does he care? And is, is it part of his plan anyway? It, and I mean, does Steve Lance has the excuse? If you think that he got them wrong, well, maybe it's the master of the land of fiction who's getting them wrong. Well, exactly. He's covered either way. Point. So, yeah. so you know, Genius. I don't know. I don't know why he took the time to do such brilliant, um, you know, characterization of of anyone because he can, yeah, as you say, just say, oh yeah, no, it was uh, something else. Yeah. But um, so so let's hone in on some of the tropes that he's recycling here. Um, let's. So, what do the famous five mean to you? They mean a bunch of books I collected. I had all the editions with Gary Russell on the cover <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, I'm kind of assuming he's why we've got the adventure kids. Yeah, well, yeah, well, one of them is called Gary's, and I, can't, I don't think they all line up with the actors who played the adventure kids, but that's definitely a reference. I think I think no one's ever heard of the other four, so um, unless you're going to tell me that one of them went on to be like a Oscar-winning actress or something. Funny you um, say that. The, the, the one who played the dog. Brilliant. That, oh, that was yes. Angelina Jolie. I was going to say, did it go on to be Charlize Theron? <laughs> but I, I was I was wrong by about three foot six. Um, so, yeah, I, I read the first Famous Five book and I kind of read it far enough into the second to kind of see the formula and be like, yeah, there's no there's no aliens in this. There's no time traveling cupboards that are painted blue. I'm not interested in this nonsense. Yeah, no, it's the same. It, it is basically the same story over and over again. But it was quite comforting when I was in possible with meningitis when I was six. I think it was. I can I can well believe that. So, it, so it was like, it's great. Everyone's buying me a shit ton of books. I'm happy. Brilliant. It's worth trying to catch meningitis again. Absolutely. If measles and meningitis bounced back, it was great. Fun yeah, times. I've got feeling a little bit... Uh, yeah. Maybe I've, no, I've got a lurgy. Yeah, help me, <laughs> listeners. Send me gifts. All right, um, well, which famous five book do you want? Kieran Island? Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, that was a belter. Um, then the other story point that I think is quite interesting because it's probably the hardest one to get into this kind of book is is the kind of serial killer story which is kind of i don't know it's a bit jack the ripper it's a bit twin peaks it's a bit generic you know kind it's, of yeah but generic is the deliberate thing isn't it because mm. again uh, it's going back it, it's it's what lawrence Moss said about when the tv's why well, he didn't want the tv show coming back because it would like to be a fan in charge and it would just be all things fans liked rather than the stuff that get, makes a good show and again, yes. I think this is the point of the Master of Land of Fiction in a lot of ways. 
it, it's a new what what would a new adventure reader think was cool in Doctor Who? Yeah, it would be as a as a kind of thought experiment. It would be really good fun to write the kind of book that you'd think it would be. You know, three chapters of it would be Ace running around naked. Um, well, Andrew doc- Carmel did that already, didn't he? He did, he did, but but you know, briefly. Um, there'd be the Doctor would kill about seven billion people with one callous act of indifference. But actually, I think Neil Penswick already did that. He did, yes. Um, the Benny would be sort of fabulous and very amusing and lovely, and, and, and have most all of the, the writers, good lines. yeah, and most of the writers managed to do that. Um, that's yeah, that's probably it. So the kind of average new adventure that we all wanted probably exists in in fits and starts here and there. I think. Um, the other thing I suppose that interests me about this book is that and this is this has come up before with Lawrence Miles and Alien Bodies but this is another book that seems to contain an awful lot of tropes that Stephen Moffat would go on to um base his entire Doctor Who output on I believe it is the first time Stephen Moffat's mentioned in a Doctor Who book too I think you're probably right he's in the um the thanks yes page at the start yeah Dear, dear Stephen, I love you. Please, please put away that notebook while you're reading my my novel. <laughs> P.S. So, press gang. <laughs> so yeah, so we get a reference to press gang. We get the first appearance of the Doctor's large spoon, which fair enough, that was a Gatiss story, but that was in the Moffat era. Yes. Um, we get the the idea of the White Knight being a real life Marvel superhero in a Doctor Who story. So that's the return of Doctor Mysterio. And um, if I can read my handwriting, because I've written notes, because I'm trying to be professional. Ace works out that time isn't passing. She's just jumping from scene to scene, much like Donna in the silence in the library. Brackets, Stephen Moffat. Oh, yeah, does like his his old uh, fictional world, the old cyberspace. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think there's anything in that or am I just am I just seeing things that aren't there? I think it's elements there. I, uh, I'm sure he read a lot of the books. I, I don't think he read all of them by any means because obviously he had a career at that point, unlike most of us. He certainly did. He was, um, he was what finishing Press Gang, just starting to think about that yeah. sitcom that I haven't seen. He done joking apart. I think he done joking apart by that point. Joking apart oh, okay. ninety two. Okay. I, I might be wrong. So it's, yeah. I, I think it's. Chalk is and oh, in was, the kind of works at this Chalk point, maybe? was mid mid nineties, wasn't it? I remember the first series of Chalk and thinking, This isn't terrible. It was all um, right. It, it's it was much all right. better than its reputation. I think it probably is. It's sort of like the, the opposite of the British Empire in that respect. Um, <laughs> yes. But then obviously Moffat sort of took off with coupling, which was I think think 2000 yeah either 99 early 2000s yeah. so yeah so he he kind of his goal his imperial phase kind of began with the curse of fatal death and it for me it kind of ended with the end of series three of coupling because once jeff leaves um yes I, I think 
despite the rest of the characters still having great story arcs and storylines and very funny dialogue, I just can't bear to watch that guy that took over from Jeff. Yeah, oh, you so. can't replace Jeff. You can't. Jeff was the best thing. Richard Not Coyle, just in yeah. coupling. Richard yeah. Coyle. Not just the best thing in coupling. The best thing, I would say, in British sitcom ever. I'm pretty sure it's a Moffat. It's the one Moffat thinks he is. Yeah. <laughs> I've got. Yeah. I, I know the accept was him. He, he's, um, I've got Jack Davenport's character. But look, look, yeah. at, look at Richard Coyle. He's meant to be Stephen Moffat. He's got the yeah. haircut for it. He's got the haircut. He's, he's got the, he's got the nerd gene. Um, he is, uh, so, utterly brilliant he's got all the dodgy uh blue videos shall we say yes yes he has he's got a number of very athletic personal habits um the most well-developed forearms in that quarter of london i believe and too many legs and too many legs oh this is the worst one ever i've got too many legs Oh, it's, it's that and it's stop it Jeffrey you're shaking the caravan <laughs> anyway we digress um, so let's say if Stephen Moffat just read this book and Alien Bodies would that have given him enough ammunition to go away and write what he wrote between 2010 and, and whenever he finally got to leave because he was kind of like the master of the land of fiction himself by yes. the look by the end of the Capaldi era I'm, he just wanted to go he just wanted someone else to take over i'm vastly surprised that he didn't do a land of fiction story right at the end yeah although he did it, try to go out with with and they all lived happily ever after of course in his first try yes yes didn't didn't manage to escape on that occasion so it's like you have to imagine this big gothic cathedral and, and Stephen Moffat's there and there are all these like hollow computers and Chris Chibnall's wandering around and Moffat's going, oh, I wonder, would you, mm, would you take over from me? And Chibnall's like, well, no, I, uh, so, no Moffat's going, can you just sit here for a second? I need a toilet break. Just keep your finger on this button. Yeah. Sucker. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. <laughs> So, yeah, so um, we've got a book which, as I think I have ably demonstrated to, you know, you know, I've, I've defended my thesis. I've got my PhD. Um, this I, I did is... actually write on this in my degree at one point. Oh, shit. Yes, did you? Yeah, yeah we had a there. children's literature, literature module. So I was just they've got narrative voices in children's literature. Thank you very much. I can just That's go and reread a Doctor Who book for this. I mean, so we had a module of children's literature and, and I had the very perceptive insight after studying it for about three months that there weren't any women in The Hobbit. Um, <laughs> I, I remember I The Water Babies was racist, wasn't it? It was a quite easy one. Oh, all of it was racist. I mean, Roald yeah. Dahl, it was all racist. Yep. Um, uh, you know, it's, it was all terrible. Everything that was written before, ironically... Uh, Doctor Who started was just appalling. Um, but to actually have the schutzpah to get someone to grade you for having read a Doctor Who book, I think is audacious and very. And if you were here, you'd go over my knee. Promises, promises. <laughs> I'm the master of this land, and what I say goes. <laughs> I thought it was Agent Orange. <laughs> He's in charge. All right, all right. He's the yeah. He's the he's the boss. He's the boss. He's 
he was on like three percent battery, so I've had to plug him in. Oh. Um, but uh, he might he might make it back for next episode. So what were your what were your thoughts reading this book for a second time? I I still enjoyed it, but I I keep kind of there's one point to come back because I'm I'm sure I ripped a hole. So when there was a big finished writing competition back in the early two thousands, where I I essentially ripped off the superhero thing and wrote a story about a kid who loved superheroes who ended up really miserable and sad and dying because he thought he could be a superhero. And as mm. as I, I think the judge was Simon Gurria, and as you rightly point out in the general feedback, it's not about being miserable. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but Norman's story, it, it does have a, a lot of pathos to it. I really like that one. It does. Do you want to just quickly recap Norman's story for anyone listening who might it's hard to imagine anyone listening to this drivel who hasn't <laughs> read the book but it might be it might be the case you never yeah. know you should read this book honestly if you haven't um <laughs> yes he is a a former superhero I think he was in New York if I'm not mistaken because all superheroes are obviously in New York one way or the mm. other even if it's Gotham and he retired. He lost his power. His sidekick got killed, which is probably a reference. I'd imagine some like the death in the family at that point, the Batman story. So he lost it, and he's retired to this cozy old English village, where he's being hunted. Suddenly, being tracked down by his nemesis. His nemesis, who is from New York. Funnily enough, I believe so. Yes. With the surname Grimshaw. Yes. Which is not a name I traditionally associate with America. I can't say I've ever known anyone from America called Grimshaw, no. No, it's it's only baddies in 80s kids TV shows like Johnny Briggs that were set vaguely north of, say... Oh, oh yeah, Yorkshire, Lancashire, somewhere, yeah. yeah. You know, even even parts of North London, just anywhere north, (laughs) anywhere northern, you know. Um, Grimshaw. I thought that was preposterous. That uh, obviously it's supposed to be preposterous. It's that kind of book, but but again, it could be the, that to uh, the master land of fiction having this weird small frame of reference, despite loving the big stories. Well, so he's coded. So he's wearing jeans and a black kiss T-shirt. So he's coded as that kind of early 90s small-minded north you know the sort of northern queen fan who was like violently homophobic but loved queen and wouldn't had no time for your theories about freddie mercury being anything other than a god-fearing lady botherer no but did you did you have a black t-shirt in the 90s come on were you wearing black t-shirts i had a faith no more black t-shirt and i think i had a red i definitely had a red dwarf black t-shirt as well oh and um, the inquisitor one i had Oh, nice. Yeah, I, had, um, I had smoked me a kipper. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I had a prisoner one. And I think okay. the other one I tend to wear was the automatic for the people cover. Oh, nice. Oh, that's and a then, good one. And then I had the track listing on the back. It was great. Oh, yeah, I haven't. I have, I've got, I've recently acquired a Monster, a Monster Tour t-shirt, a New Adventures t-shirt. And... They haven't got any Fables ones left in my size, or I'd get a Fables oh, one is, as is well. It, is it the, the white T-shirt with the green stipe, sort of, with his hand? Mm, no, but I have I have seen that one. Oh, I just have that one. 
Yeah, that was no, lovely. From the Milton Keynes gig. Lovely. Oh, it was great. Great days. We've we've blundered into REM listeners and now <laughs> there's gonna be an entirely unrelated little section on it's, it's not on REM. New Adventures. Oh New Adventures, new Adventures. Was, was even named after the book. Exactly. That's... Do you to what extent do you think Michael Stipe read these books and and their teachings found their way back into his music? Well, I I can tell you very much that in a, it was an enemy interview enemy interview to promote something like around electrolyte, mm. where Peter Buck said I look like Doctor Who in this video, so I'm thinking Peter Buck's the one with all the Doctor Who gear in the back, and he's passed that on to say Michael, you can use some of these. I'm go yeah, I'd have that. I think I think Buck looks like the sort of man who. If he'd been based in Chelmsford in the UK at the time I was working in a bookshop in Chelmsford, he'd have been coming in every probably once a week to chew the fat, get the yeah. latest sci-fi books, see if there was going to be another George R. R. Martin anytime soon. <laughs> you know, he'd have been one of those guys. Yeah. I don't know because because with REM the 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 lyrics have this kind of elevated poetry which i feel a lot of new adventures authors don't quite reach yeah it's it's making you work for them you have to listen to the the lyrics um, early on obviously he he does that by not saying them very loudly yeah sure and then at the end, and then yes by he unless you've got something as very very obvious as everybody hurts he's looking to make you sort of come to him for them because every the first question every rm to what's song about yeah oh oh michael you're enigmatic what what's this one about now there is there is this trope um that every new adventure has a chapter named after a pop song mm. there are probably quite a few with chapters called everybody hurts like near the end after a big showdown. It's but every, when every I, Jim Mortimer concluding chapter, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But when we find the, the new adventure that's got a chapter called What's the Frequency, Kenneth? That's a fucking specific niche. Oh. When we but find that. Someone's bound, to have used, someone's bound to have used It's the End of the World as we know it. Oh, I would have thought. I would I, I would, would think Allman. I'd go Allman would have used that. Oh, yeah, I think she's good. she's got a good taste. She is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're coming out of the REM uh, cul-de-sac now, listeners. So for those of you rejoining us, you missed the best bit, but, you know, tough. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a book which... Um, I think it's got a finite number of reads. I think, like I said, the first mm. time you read it, you think it's brilliant. The second time you read it, even though you know what's coming, you can enjoy the characters, blah, blah, blah. This would be the third time I've read it. And yeah, fourth, fourth or fifth you know, me. And, yeah. and whilst I love the characterization and the writing is, you know, absolutely fine, I did find myself going, get on with it. Yeah, it kind of gets... A I think you get to around page 160. Clearly, the doctor knows what's going on. Yeah. And then, yeah, you're just spinning the wheels to the end for the, for the working to a certain extent. Although, yeah. again, it, it, I think it does depend on you um, reacting to the clever tricks. 
it, it, I mean, there is to a certain degree, the author is showing off, but in a way that is actually quite clever. I, I mean, I love that, um, that what's the, the chapter that ends in the middle of a sentence and, and then, yeah, yeah. yeah, back where you need to go to uh, half second later. Gorgeous. There are, God there are dear. some really clever, um, because the idea that the, the author of the book is occasionally making these kind of like, you know, turning to the camera and talking to you, the reader, and then the doctor can do the same thing or suddenly the narrative breaks down in what are very kind of graphic novel kind of visual mm. kind of ways. It feels like like a lot of the new adventures. It does feel very visual um, and it is really quite sophisticated for a TV tie into a, to a kid's TV series that's been cancelled. It is too broad and too deep, isn't it? It, it's, it is. It it's is one, too broad. It's one of those that is genuinely thinking. Do you what? know, that's how I, sh I should have introduced us like that. Too broad you're, too deep. You're, you're too, too deep. Broad. I'm oh, too I broad. Know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going for the too broad. You know, I'm hitting middle age now. <laughs> Sorry, I completely interrupted you and you were probably right. going to say something very profound. But no, I don't do profound. I, I do oh. flippant. I, I, I'm the Lawrence Miles, Paul Mars. Steve Lyons guy, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a clever stuff. It, it's one of those that does think a bit hard about how to do Doctor Who as a novel. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's kind of in that lineage that Time Worm Revelation started. Mm. It, it's you know, what can you do on a page that you cannot do effectively on television, and it really and it and again probably Time Time's Crucible as well. One is one of those I'd I'd say. Because yeah, yeah. there's no way you can do. I know it was originally a script, but there is no way you can do that on television. No, I mean with the sort of budget that they would have had to hand had it been commissioned in no. the late eighties, it would have been amazing though, wouldn't it? Oh, it would you be get great. you get some crap actor in a tinfoil suit pretending to be a giant leech oh, in a yeah. in a vista made of cereal packets that have been painted silver a respected english character actor late in their career oh yes yes it would have been i um, do this to impress the kids no uh, and, and I've, i'm a worm with two gobs <laughs> who um brian brian glover i'm thinking oh yeah he was around then he could do it yeah <laughs> I, i'd love i'd love him as a process i, I would I'm, I'm going to go back and reread Times Crucible now, just with Brian Glover's voice in my head. The, the, the Glover, the Glover Megamix, yeah. Yeah, and oh, I, I tell you, we've got to have a bunch of working class actors as the old time lords in that as well. So I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm trying to. I mean, they're too far away, and I can't read the titles. But I don't feel like there were many new adventures that did really try to do something unique to the book format and most of them did feel like they were replicating tv or or you know not not doing anything that you couldn't have yeah. done on tv it was what they wanted to do um essentially doc, their doctor movie script which is yeah. which is a fine way to approach it um but i think you get but then you get something like towards in you probably couldn't do you probably could do the also also people these days, but you couldn't have done that on television at the time because it's not got that's, enough action to sustain. That's very true. It's it would require some phenomenal effects. Although they could they could absolutely do that now. They could do the Dyson sphere and what have you. Oh god, yeah. And, and then um, Damaged Goods is and I when I I think I reread Damaged Goods around the time of the fiftieth. And it gets it's a lot of 
character pieces. It's it's not your typical Doctor Who story. It's a bunch of characters interact. It's really a beautifully done novel. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to the guy? Yeah. Uh, it was some Welsh dude, wasn't it? Yeah. I don't Tall know. Welsh, you can't trust any of them. When this book finishes, we've got we've got the Doctor Ace and Benny um, back in the TARDIS, kind of not unwillingly, but the, but there's there's kind of unresolved tension, and yes. the, the three of them are clearly heading towards some kind of showdown or reckoning. We've got this vague clue that they need to go and find a man called Danny Payne in 1976. Yes, and it's um, been randomly dropped in the. In a, does it? Did it did it really feel like it was kind of building up to the big finale of this exciting series? I, I suppose half of these ideas is that you shuffle, you can shuffle these around in order. So I you know, I don't think apart from the fact they're off to find Danny Payne, you know, th- there's no reason that it couldn't have been at any point between Blood Heat and the future. You you could you know rearrange the middle books quite happily, and mm. no effect. All you'd need to do. Drop a clue, Danny Payne. Yeah. Off we go. And even even Danny Payne has got three out of four letters the same as Danny Pink. So even that oh. is a Stephen Moffat. Oh, <laughs> he is so busted. Naughty uh, Stephen Moffat, the I, idea's pilcher. I think it's fanboy brain, as I said. I think I said to last one, fanboy brain. <laughs> yeah. We, we, yeah. All th- we all think in quite similar ways. And frankly, when you're making 13... 12, 13 Doctor episodes a year, you are going to just dive back into stuff that's hidden in your subconscious somewhere, I think. Yeah, you're not going to have time to, you know, sort of develop one of these ideas and then sort of think, oh, no, maybe not, and start again. You've got to kind of commit to them fairly quickly. And if it turns out that you're unconsciously echoing something that you've done before or Steve Lyons has done before, yeah. then you've just got to kind of front it out. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the other thing you say, because um, obviously it turns out certain characters in the novel are actually real people. Do and, go on. you know, science in libraries, say, it ends. It turns, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that computer, what you think was a computer simulation. No, they were real people in that computer simulation too. Yeah. Yeah, so there was there was an element of real people and real peril. Yeah. In this book as well, so you get you know, you get your money's worth if you if you read it purely for the death count. That's it's a nice little kick kicking, is it? Oh yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. The guy's gone splat. Yeah, he was real. So, oh, which might, yeah. again might be a comment on the kind of callousness of fans and the way they love the death count. I think so. I mean, he was, you know, nothing if not a, a kindly, heroic, slightly. I don't know, over the top, a bit histrionic. Deranged? Oh, a bit deranged, saying. yeah, but a bit of a bit of a crazy. But um but you would be. He was kind of like what what Superman would have been like after yeah. Superman two if he'd never got his powers back. And he spent thirty years walking the earth going, Oh damn it, I wish I'd kept my my superhero inheritance. I could or, have Yeah. Or Batman yeah. after Robin died. It's it's like okay, yeah. it it's Going, no, these characters do have real emotional reactions. It's what it would. I mean, you know, the fantasy is the point of those series because the endless trauma would pile up and they never. You know, <laughs> they would. They would be utterly unable to function on any meaningful level apart from 
administering several punches to God, yeah, I mean, the, the villain's face. I've read some 60s Marvel book, uh, compilations a few years back, and it, it's they, they're just going straight from one adventure to the another endlessly. You know, it's non-stop. It's like, Jesus, they're on speed or something. <laughs> they have to be. I know it's superheroes, but still. But yeah, there's there is this this kind of up and atom kind of we begin every story raring to go and fresh as a daisy and it's like in twenty four when it's episode one and Jack Bauer's just sort of waking up happily and you think, Oh there's no there's no jeopardy here, he's fine but when it when it begins and it's like already midnight and he's knackered and about to go to bed and that's episode one of twenty four, that's when you know that you're gonna get the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> not not to um, not to liken the new adventures to twenty four, which was a very different narrative format. Yeah. Less yeah. violent. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly less Republican. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything you would like to say that we haven't already covered while we review this um, actually the cover is one of my favourite covers. Oh, the Painting of Ace is absolutely astonishing. Oh, it's I thought. beautiful, and then the juxtaposition as well. Because I, I went into it, I didn't know anything about it. I think I, either I acquired it before DWM came out for that month, or yeah, you know, and it didn't give any clues away. Mm. So you know, I don't know. Start reading it. It's like, oh, this is clever, and you know, it, it, it does have some really clever moments, like when Ace gets attacked by the new adventures. That's a very meta moment, isn't it? That's kind of lovely, but just there for fan service. Yeah, well, literally, isn't it? I think because those are those people she's meant to be fans or. It's kind of it's a cyberspace ending through the back door. So it isn't a cyberspace ending, but it is ace in a kind of artificial construct. Yes. Is it inside the TARDIS? I I believe it is. Yes. And there's a room that's full of all these books, and they're all—they've all got white spines, and and they've all got names like deceit and love and war, yeah. and presumably, um, I was going to say transit, but of course she's not in that one. No. <laughs> what a what a fool I am. <laughs> the curse of Fenric, shall we say? Um, and yeah, that's a really meta moment. And it, again, it's one of those things that if it happened. On the TV show now, you'd be thinking, oh, God, don't do that. No one's going to watch this show anymore. It's just fan wank. But in the books, when there's, you know, a few thousand people reading them, it's fine. Yeah, it, it, it's knowing, I think. It knows it yeah. knows the new adventures tropes, the things that have developed yeah. over the, I think, 20-odd books before. It so knows it's what play- it can get away yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, it's playing with them and it's having fun with them. Where can the listeners hear more of your beautiful voice well on the very very fine strangers in space podcast which i believe you could, we can also find some other talented handsome human beings also i'm on there <laughs> i'll send them up you knock them down <laughs> fair enough that's uh, that's how i roll uh, the strangers in space podcast and what's the kind of remit of that podcast it's it's it started as a doctor who podcast but it's evolved to wider pop culture so it takes in films television even books sometimes and music 
I've I've sort of categorized it as a podcast that's basically by the time it finishes, its aim is to have reviewed everything. Yes. So, Conundrum by Steve Lyons. And I'm going to keep this one short and state this from the off. I love this book. I mean, sure, I figured out that this was a return trip to the land of fiction pretty early on. But it's the execution of that idea and the fun that Lyons has along the way, which is what makes it such a joy to read. And because it's the land of fiction, he can get away with pretty much anything. It's not tied to one genre. We get any blight and parody, world-weary former superheroes, Chandler-esque detectives, satanic rituals, serial killers and witchcraft. And it all works together brilliantly. And the presence of the writer as the narrator means that the book is self-aware. It knows all the typical Who cliches of cliffhangers at the end of chapters, miraculous escapes from certain death and continuity errors. And it revels in them. But what's also key to the success of the novel is that the silliness is balanced with real moments of character development and sadness, even though you know that pretty much all the supporting characters aren't real. Yes, I know, strictly speaking, none of it's real, but you get my point. Benny and Ace actually get stuff to do, and their conversations both together and apart give real insight into their feelings. Ace admitting her anger at the Doctor's manipulations and how she wants to beat him at his own game was an important moment, even more so because she shared it with her troubling companion first. And Benny's care for Norman Powell really shines through, right up to his terrible, tragic end. If I'm honest, it's the best I've seen them both written for quite a while. If I have any criticism, it's that the story strand with the adventure kid doesn't seem to have much point, beyond a perfectly good homage. Although I did like the continual problems with Carson the dog and his ultimate fate. It made me think of the infamous Five Go Mad in Dorset by the comic strip, which is never a bad thing. But that's a minor quibble amongst so much stuff to like. The TARDIS becoming a gingerbread cottage. The life-size game of Mousetrap. The Doctor's conversation with the Master of the Land via a Scrabble board. Explaining the power of Meanwhile. The brilliant line, this time I want the real McCoy. Plus, John and Gillian, the Doctor's real grandchildren from TV comic, pop up. Along with mentions of the Kleptons and the Trods. And I'm guessing that the author might also be a DC Comics fan with characters named Corrigan and Shade. But the really deep cut comes with an appearance from the mechanical Dreadlocks, who appeared once in an early 80s issue of, all things, Power Man and Iron Fist. I imagine Lyons had a lot of fun writing this. I rattled through the book very quickly, which is always a good sign. I wouldn't want every Who novel to be this madcap, but it's refreshing to have it every now and again. It's going to be a good long while before we get to another Steve Lyons book. Head Games, I think. Personally, if it's as good as this one, then I'm really looking forward to it.